Last week, we led off with a quote from Justin Martyr where he described what a Christian worship service looked like in the early church. He talked about what Sunday worship looked like. And um, then we also quoted from Pliny the Younger. We heard from Pliny the Younger what it is that he saw um, uh, reported to the emperor as far as worship taking place in Christian churches. And then we talked about the order of service in, an, in, an, in the early church. And we talked about what the Eucharist was like. We talked about how the services would be divided in half. And in the second half, unbelievers would be ushered out of the service so that they could pray. And so they could observe the Lord's Supper together. Um, we talked about how the services were quite long. How people would stand through the services. Um, um, all in all... What I wanted you to see was even very early on services that resemble what we do, I think. And I, that is not my attempt to, to uh, sort of retrofit on what we do and just try and read back into it what we do. But I, I really think uh, in striving for simplicity, you're led back to what they did in the early church. And if your desire is for simplicity in worship, as you see, and as we'll see today, you find yourself increasingly aggravated as you go along with church, in church history. <laughs> so what I wanted to talk about was some of the innovations that start appearing in the early church. And for my, for my sake, I'm just going to define the early church as the time before they usually regard as the fall of Rome. Um, so around 400 AD, after 400 AD, that's good. I'm going to group that in with the Middle Ages. It's the early Middle Ages. We're going to just put them all together because I'm not a proper historian. And I just it, it makes it more convenient and a little easier for me to do it that way. Um, but here's one of the innovations that start to appear in the 4th century. You start to see a greater tendency toward ritual and ceremony. So as, as simple as the services are, especially in the services in 100, even in the 200 ADs, by the mid-300s, you start to see things on the horizon. For example, Cyril of Jerusalem. Cyril of Jerusalem, around 350 AD, he was the first that we know of to wear special vestments, to use incense in the service, to carry lamps, and to engage in the lighting of candles in the worship service. Uh, before that, we don't know of these things taking place, and Cyril of Jerusalem brings them in with full force in 350. Um, I'm going to mention something else about Cyril as far as uh, complexity and ritual goes. Um, with Cyril of Jerusalem, baptism becomes, it takes dramatic leaps away from what you see in the New Testament. So Cyril introduces this extremely lengthy initiation for new Christians who are seeking to be baptized. Um, for Cyril, sometimes the process of confirmation could take as long as three years before someone would actually be baptized. Um, now, in the early church, there are many reasons for this, one of which is the long process of somebody being what's called a catechumen, right? Somebody who's being instructed in the faith. They want you to know everything before you get baptized. And so they, they spend a long time with you. And then um, the other reason, though, was because even by the time of Augustine, uh, you have this belief that baptism plays a role in washing away the stain of original sin. Um, and this is something that still persists in the Roman Catholic Church, this belief that original sin is washed away 
by being baptized. And so what would some people do? They would delay their baptisms. They would delay their baptisms sometimes their whole life. Um, some, for some people, even you know, bishops, um, I, I was going to give an example, but I'm afraid I'll get it wrong. So I'm not going to go off the top of my head here. But they would be baptized on their deathbeds because they thought, you know, I'll have less sins to my account if I'm baptized later. Um, but here was what Cyril did as far as the ceremony goes. And by the way, I'm not even getting as deep into the ceremony as I could. Um, so baptisms become very involved. What do they do? First, they renounce sin and their former life. Then in the early morning hours, people, they would turn from west to east toward the light, symbolizing their change of allegiance. Also, they wouldn't tell people what the ceremony involved beforehand. Um, they wanted them to be ignorant of what was involved in baptism. They wanted to catechize them and teach them all the truths of the faith, but they weren't to know what they actually did at their baptism until the time actually came. So they take them and they have them turn from west to east, symbolizing they have a change of allegiance. And then they would take a pledge of allegiance to Jesus. Um, they would strip the candidates who were being baptized. They would have them kneel on sackcloth. They would anoint them from head to toe in olive oil. Um, the reason they would remove their clothes from them was that they are, they, are, they are washed and taken back to the Garden of Eden where they are innocent and where they felt no shame once again. It's meant to be the thought process that is involved in doing all of that. Um, yes, Benjamin. Was Cyril a Greek? Cyril of Jerusalem would not have been, probably not have been considered Greek, although I don't know what he spoke. And to what extent would the Roman Catholic Church consider him a father of that denomination? They would, they would have a high regard for Cyril. I, I'm pretty sure that Cyril is a saint in the Catholic Church. That he would be coming from the apostleship of Peter? No, no, they would not have seen him as, they would not have seen him on, in Rome as like the bishop of Rome. They wouldn't have seen him as a pope, for example. Um, he would have just been the bishop over Jerusalem, which still would have been a prominent place by that point. You know, people still, you know, even today, when people think of Jerusalem, they get a little bit, I'll use the word superstitious. We can get a little superstitious about the city and think there's something more prominent about Jerusalem than other places. And back then there was, there was this very similar attitude. Um, I'll try to steer away from the history of the papacy, though, because I'm trying to stick with worship. We'll see how, we'll see how well I can do that, though. Um, so each step, though, of the process was very infused with meaning. Um, once they've been washed, uh, once, or sorry, once they had been anointed, once they've been stripped, once they've been anointed, then they would be baptized. They would either be baptized by full immersion or by pouring water over the head. Um, every single step meant something, but also very little of it resembled what you see in the New Testament. <laughs> right? you, you're getting very far away from simply pouring water on someone's head or simply immersing somebody. Um, instead, you are, you're, it's very involved now. Um, we catch glimpses of other practices in early church history too, especially with Cyril, uh, dressing baptized people in white robes, a kiss of peace given to the newly baptized. Eventually, the Western church begins placing the sign of the cross on the forehead of each person who's being baptized. So you can just see they keep piling things on and every one of them is meaningful. And, and, in this, in, and in one sense, you'd be like, why is any of this wrong? You could just keep adding things. What's wrong with that? Um, but we're going to, by the time we get to the end of this, hopefully you'll see the problems that start to accrue. Um, 
But I, I see I see Cyril of Jerusalem as a very negative uh, development in the history of the church. Because as you move more and more towards ceremony, it's hard to remove those ceremonies. Once you start the ball rolling, it's very hard to stop it. Um, in fact, let's go to the next development, and I'll mention another one. The expansion of the cult of the saints. You know, the early years of the church, you do have many examples of persecution against Christians taking place. And so when somebody would die, you can imagine how it's very reasonable to care about this person whose life was taken, right? And so you might have somebody like Polycarp who dies. And then what do people do? People who knew Polycarp, people who respected Polycarp, um, you remember the man, right? You, you remember his courage. You remember his last words. You write them down. And then it's not, it's not even wrong to remember that person, maybe on the anniversary of their death. And you could imagine how eventually, over the course of a number of years, that day that you remember when he died, eventually ends up becoming something very different than what it first started out as, especially by those who actually knew him and were remembering him. And so what happens is Christians begin attaching importance to the dead bodies of the martyrs. Uh, Chapels and shrines begin to be built over the tombs of saints. Um, You start to see in this time period explicit belief that the saints in heaven, even now, can still help struggling Christians and can pray for them. And so what would struggling Christians do? They They would pray to the saints and they would ask the saints, help me, pray for me. Pray for me, St. Polycarp. Pray for me, St. Matthew. Pray for me, St. John. Pray for me, St. Paul. And now, who are you speaking to instead of the Lord? People. You're speaking to deceased saints now instead of talking to the Lord. Um, Christians would ask the saints to pray for them. And at this point, they did not see themselves as praying to saints. What they saw themselves doing is asking the saints for help. But it would look identical to what we would think of as prayers. Now, some did resist. Um, There were vigilantes within the church who protested this development. They said, this is a pagan practice. I'll give you an example. St. Jerome, uh, disguised as religion, we almost see the ceremonies of the pagans being introduced into our churches. People light rows of candles in broad daylight. And in all places, they kiss and adore the dust of a dead body contained in a little pot and wrapped up in a precious cloth. Um, and that's Jerome. He's being extremely critical. And he's saying, we will talk about this in a little bit. But when, what, happens, what happens with Constantine? What does Constantine represent for the church? What does he do? Does anyone remember? We haven't talked about it here, but I'm sure one of you knows. The legend? Constantine? Yeah. <laughs> so he makes Christianity legal in the Edict of Milan. And then his son makes it the state religion. And so it goes from being tolerated under Constantine to becoming the official religion of the state. And so what happens when it becomes a state religion? What do you think happens to the, you know, I, in the sermon today, I talked about the chart of attendance here. It's steadily gone upward, thankfully, over time. And what would you say happens to the attendance chart in the churches once it becomes the state religion? Easter Sunday for like a hundred years. <laughs> wow. And it's not because everybody is persuaded of who Jesus is, right? Instead, it's the state religion. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't jump higher. Somebody, somebody more competent could have jumped higher and it would have been correct. 
So what happens with all of those pagans who are used to, to kissing their idols and uh, looking at images of the gods and going through all these ceremonies and lighting candles as a way of praying to uh, the gods? What happens to those folks? Do they just renounce all that? As hard as the church may try to instruct that out of people, uh, sometimes you can take the... Uh, you can take the paganism out of the pagan, but you, it's pretty difficult, and it takes an awful long time. And instead, what starts to happen in the church is you start to see the pagan practices that are very dominant become a regular part now of where, of where Christians say, you know, we could do this, right? We could do this. And that's why you start to get Jerome's complaint about candles being lit in broad daylight, people kissing and adoring the dust of a dead body. The pagans were very physically oriented toward things. They found a great deal of hope and instruction in things. And the Christians up until that point, I'm going to read you some things. I don't know if we'll get to it today or not. But you're going to start to see just the very dramatic differences between the ministers and the common people. And you start to see the development of, in the church of how all those pagan things start to come up and become real problems in the church. Um, Cyprian of Carthage in 250 AD introduces the idea of the minister as a priest. The minister as a priest. Now in scripture, uh, who does it say is a priest? Who? So we see Jesus as a priest. Now there's some, another kind of person also is called a priest. Can you think of what scripture teaches? The, the, we've got the doctrine of the priesthood of believers too, right? Now... When we talk about a priest, we're talking about somebody who, is, who stands in our place before God and, and mediates for us to God, right? And so when we say Jesus is a high priest, we mean that Jesus mediates the covenant for us and that we go to Christ and we find all that we need in Jesus. And so, and there is no, and so Christ is our high priest in that sense. But Christians are also priests in the sense that they are able to go directly to Jesus, And they do not have an intermediary between themselves and the Lord. And in that sense, we have direct access to our God. Um, And so that's what we mean when we talk about the priesthood of believers. But Cyprian of Carthage, instead, he begins to speak of the priest as the one who stands between God and the sinner. The way you see this physically play its way out is in the Lord's Supper. What does the priest begin to do with himself physically? When he administers the supper, where do I stand to administer the supper? I mean, I stand back here, right? I'm, I'm back behind. I'm behind, in my case, the, the pulpit, because that's where the microphone is, and people online can hear me. Um, but but the, the intention is to stand behind the elements. And the reason is this. There is not someone between you and the Lord. There is not someone who stands between you and Jesus. And that's being physically represented. Um, I'm getting a little ahead of us, but when we get to the Reformation, they tear down the altars in the churches because the altar is built into the wall usually, and there's no way to stand behind it. And so even the Reformers early on, you know, what are they doing? They're still standing between the people and the Lord's Supper because the place is physically constructed to not allow you to stand anywhere else. And so that's why we don't have altars. That's why we have a simple table. So Reformers take out the altar. They put in a table. Because no one stands between you and God. No one stands between you and the Lord Jesus. 
Um, but that begins to develop. Cyril of Carth- or Cyprian of Carthage in 250 AD introduces this idea. And <clears throat> by the way, in a lot of these cases, someone introduces them beforehand. They may have introduced it beforehand, but we don't know of it. These are the earliest occurrences of these things. Um, here comes a really non-controversial one. Pictures of Jesus and the saints begin to adorn churches. Um, in the East, these pictures, where I'm, I'm specifically saying pictures, not statues, they're called icons. And they're called icons because they're two-dimensional. So in the East, they saw an image as something that was three-dimensional. In other words, like a statue. And an icon was seen as something that was two-dimensional. And so um, before the fourth century, such pictures were disfavored. Um, Tertullian opposed using pictures of Jesus or the saints. Clement of Alexandria opposed the usage of pictures of Jesus or the saints. Uh, Eusebius was opposed to them, but when he's writing in the fourth century, he says they are used a lot. So by the 300s, it's pretty common to see pictures of Jesus and the saints. There's actually a story told about a, a, pel- a fellow named Epiphanius of Salamis. Um, I don't know the year that this took place, but he lived from 310 to 403 AD. And here's what happens. Epiphanius sees a picture of Jesus woven into a curtain in a church in Palestine. And he sees this image of Jesus and he is so angry that on the spot he grabs the curtain and he yanks it down. And he took it and he and he took it to the bishop of Jerusalem and said, you shouldn't be allowing this anymore. And he actually attaches to it a note, which we still have. And in the note, he says, use it for something useful, like as a winding sheet for some poor person. Um, anybody know what a winding sheet is? No. It's a burial cloth. He's like, bury some poor person in this. Put it to some use, but stop hanging these pictures of Jesus up in the church. Um, here's the message that he sent along to... Um, This is a message that he sent along to the bishop of Jerusalem. I have now sent the best that I could find. He's replacing the curtain. He feels really bad about it. He's like, (laughs) he's like, I tore down your curtain. I'm very sorry. And I found the best curtain I could find. He says, I've sent now the best that I could find. And I beg that you will order the presbyter of the place, the elder of the place, to take the curtain which I have sent from the hands of the reader. And that you will afterward give directions that curtains of, of the other sort... Opposed as they are to our religion, shall not be hung up in any church of Christ. A man of your uprightness should be careful to remove an occasion of offense unworthy alike of the church of Christ and of those Christians who are committed to your charge. And so he begs them, please don't hang up any more pictures of Jesus in the church. Um, Now, Epiphanius was fighting a losing battle. Um, Think of what I just mentioned before. Who is flooding into the churches? In the 300s and 400s. Pagans. Who are. Who don't know how to worship without images. They don't know how to. They don't know how to worship the invisible God. Without having something to help them. And so. The church becomes flooded with pagans. Who are now Christian. They keep many aspects of their pagan worship. Including the extensive and habitual use of of images. So. Epiphanius represents sort of an opposition that never dies out. 
And in fact, I think when we talk about the Middle Ages, we're going to talk about the iconoclast controversies that take place because they're so closely related to the subject of worship. Um, but the time between the First Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, think of that time period here, between 325 and 787 um, is when iconoclasm blew up as an issue in the church. When I say iconoclasm, I mean there is a group of people who by the late 800s have had it with these images. They've had it with these images and you have emperors now duking it out basically as to whether or not these images should be all over the place. Um, we're going to talk about that in depth. I'm actually going to read a lot to you from the early church fathers showing that there is this consistent drumbeat of opposition to making images of Christ and the saints. But then you're going to notice the turn that happens after the 400s. You're going to just notice it in all the stuff that you start reading. Um, if it, first, it starts out as sort of a toleration. This is fine, or at least you shouldn't throw such a fit about it. Until finally, it becomes in 787, it actually becomes official doctrine of the church. That, yeah, images are fine. Um, but it takes time, right? It doesn't start out early on. Early on, they have a very Jewish mindset. Our God is invisible. We need to learn to worship God in a way that is invisible and spiritual, not physical. Uh, and then by this point, it's, it's, a, it's a losing battle. Um, so keep it on your radar. We're going to talk about it more when we talk about the Middle Ages. Um, another thing that happens is solidifying of the church calendar. Um, by the way, I won't be able to give you a full explanation of this because as I studied it, it made my head explode. Um, because there's a lot of math and because there are a lot of different versions of calendars. So what you're going to get from me is, is my best summary. <laughs> my best summary. Um, let's talk about Easter. In the very beginning, Sunday was observed as the Lord's Day. And do you remember the Justin Martyr? One of the, what is one of the reasons related to the resurrection that the Christians are worshiping on Sunday? What does Justin Martyr say? It's the day that God created the world, and it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so that's why Christians worship on Sunday mornings. And so the earliest evidence we have, at least, is that Christians are worshiping on Sunday, and they're observing Sunday in part as the day of resurrection. They're remembering that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, we know some churches were strongly opposed to tying the celebration of the resurrection to, to the Sunday after Passover. So here's what happens. Now what do we do? We celebrate Easter basically the Sunday after Passover, right? That's sort of the, the pattern that we follow. Well, early on, that is not at all something that is universally practiced. In fact, there's a fellow named Victor I. He's the Bishop of Rome. And he threatened churches in Asia Minor with excommunication if they did not stop holding to what he called the Jewish calendar and celebrating Easter on the Sunday after Passover. So he's like, if you guys don't stop, then you're going to be excommunicated. Now, the very fact that the Bishop of Rome thought that he could excommunicate people shows you how at this point already, the guy in Rome at the biggest church, in the biggest seat, in the biggest town, in the biggest country, really thought he was able to do that, um, which he wasn't. Um, and in fact... A guy named Irenaeus of Leon reaches out to him and says, you can't kick them out. 
just because they celebrate Easter. And Victor I is like, fine, okay, uh, my bad. I can't kick you guys out, but you really should stop celebrating Easter. Um, Victor I's argument is you should be celebrating the resurrection every Sunday. There shouldn't be an annual celebration of that. And that's what he's arguing for. But he did not have the support of other churches. Irenaeus of Lyon, even though he doesn't want to have Easter celebrations, he, is, he thinks that he's overreaching, which he is. Uh, he thinks he's overreaching by kicking these people out. What's the earliest evidence we have of actually Easter celebration? It's actually 10 years before Victor writes his letter. Uh, Melito of Sardis uh, preached a sermon specifically called On the Passover. And he preached it on the Passover. And in this sermon, he is commemorating the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it's the earliest evidence that we have, at least, that Christians were doing something like what we think of as Easter today, where they're saying, let's remember the death of Jesus. Let's remember the resurrection of Jesus on the approximate time of year when he would have died and when he would have risen again. Um, and it does make sense that, that, that Christians would think of the death of Jesus during the time of year when he would have been crucified and when he would have been resurrected. It's not exactly a wild idea, right? Um, but it's also not a fixed date. There's not a fixed date on the calendar that you could arrive at that actually tells you. Instead, it's totally tied to the Hebrew calendar. And don't ask me to explain the Hebrew calendar. I can't explain the Hebrew calendar. But it's connected to the Hebrew calendar. Now, here's what happens. By 325, Constantine is like, we got to figure out a date for Easter. Everybody is celebrating Easter on different days. And so let's figure this out. And so that's one of the, one of the things that happens at the Council of Nicaea is they settle on a date for Easter. Um, and they use a method of determining the date. And um, it's the church in Alexandria that ends up getting, the, getting it right in their minds. And so from 400s onward, it's March 25th as the date of the resurrection. And so March 25th uh, is, is, is the day of Easter for the ancient church. Now, there is evidence that Hippolytus of Rome saw March 25th as the date of Jesus' death. But then that changed later because the calendar kept getting adjusted. And even today, there's still debates on which, which day Easter is supposed to be held on. Uh, Christmas and Easter are different in the Eastern Church than they are in the Western Church. Don't ask me to explain why. This is where my head started hurting. Um, my advice is if you, know you want to know when Easter is, just Google when is Easter this year. <laughs> um, or I found out in conversation, seriously, talk to Charlie Meeker. He loves it. He's, he's a math major. And he totally digs going down the, the calendar rabbit hole. So seriously, if, if that's your thing, then he, he's great. So, um, now, let's talk about the name Easter. Uh, most of the world calls the day of resurrection the Pascha. That's the word for the Hebrew Passover, right? That's what's called in other parts of the world. But here's what we do. In English, we call it Easter. And... Uh, I'm just going to write the word. Um, it, is a, it is, in fact, named after a pagan Saxon spring festival, Aostre. I'm going to write it up here. Don't worry. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't celebrate Easter. But I'm just telling you why we call it what we do. Aostre, uh, the source for this is a, uh, is a guy named Vener the Venerable Bede. Who's heard of the Venerable Bede? Does anyone know anything about him other than the fact that he's venerable? 
<laughs> Venerable Bede is a church historian. Uh, he's writing in the 700s. And he describes the relationship of Aostre to Easter like this. Aostromonath has a name which is now translated Paschal Month. And which was once called after a goddess of theirs named Aostre. In whose honor feasts were celebrated in that month. Now they designate that Paschal season by her name. Calling the joys of the new rite by the time honored name of the old observance. So Bede is saying that it's not the old festival, right? Easter is not Easter is not Easter the way the pagans think of it. He's saying that it's thoroughly Christian now. It's a totally different thing. But he says they call the joys of the new rite by the time-honored name of the old observance. So uh, is Adam thrilled by the name Easter given its origin? No. I am not superstitious about the name. If this is what everybody thinks we're supposed to call the time when Jesus died and rose again, then I'm fine with using the name. Uh, You may notice I'm a little slow. Maybe you don't notice. I'm a little slow to use the word Easter. I I tend to talk about Resurrection Sunday. I tend to talk about the resurrection. Uh, I tend not to use the word Easter much. But you'll notice that in our announcement that we're going to have two services on Easter. It's a very easy, simple, straightforward way of letting people know exactly the day you're talking about. So that's the way language works, right? It's a sign that other people recognize. And then it allows them to think about the same thing you are thinking of. So we still call it Easter. Um, We could start calling it the Passover, but I just think we'd get confused, right? I think we would all get confused what we're talking about. So um, I think some of the history helps us to see, though, these these holidays are human ideas, but they point to real divine realities. And they shouldn't be treated as sacred in and of themselves. They point to sacred things. But ultimately, they're human observances of how to remember God's past rescue in Jesus. So we have to put holidays like Easter into perspective. Um, The way I look at Easter and Christmas, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, I think we'll have time, is these are annual reminders of the birth and death of Jesus. And they are worthwhile and they're important for us. Um, And so what I try to do is I try to strike a balance of not leaning on it as a true holy day. Um, but also taking advantage of the fact that we're all thinking about these things during these seasons. Um, Ultimately, you know what? It is a joy to be annually reminded of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, And ultimately, I feel the same way about the birth of Jesus. In fact, let's talk about Christmas and how we got it that day, because you can't know the date of Christmas until you get the the date of Easter, and I'll explain why. The first time we find a uh, reference, (laughs) the first time we find a resurrection, The first time we find a reference to December 25th as celebrating the birth of Jesus is from a list of martyrs from the date 354 AD. Um, So it's actually quite late. Um, And all indications are that Easter or Christmas observance developed later in the church than Easter observance did. So Christmas was not observed until much later than Easter. And the date was not accepted right away. Um, and so here, why would they need to celebrate Christmas? What's the development in church history that makes it necessary for us to have Christmas, a Christmas celebration? And the answer is a view called docetism. Who can tell, is, can anyone tell me what docetism taught? 
Dosism, uh, the, the word dakeo in Greek means to seem. It means to seem like or to appear. And docetism, doka, seem, it's kind of like saying seemism, if you were going to give it a name. Jesus seemed human, according to the Docetics. And so the Docetics denied that Jesus was a real man. They denied that he was, that he was really born. Uh, they believed that he was a phantom. They believed that he was an image, a mirage, sort of, if you want to put it that way. And, and, and so their belief was a complete denial of the humanity of Jesus. Not a partial denial, a complete denial that Jesus was a man, that he walked among us, that he lived among us. So what happens in the, in, in the, in historically in the church is Docetism comes out around the 200s. It is finally refuted at uh, Nicaea in 325. So you've got about a 125-year stretch in the church where people within the church are fighting back against this view as they see it arise. And one of the ways they begin to push back is, guess what? Emphasizing the birth of Jesus. Don't forget he was born. And so what do they do? They begin to observe the birth of Jesus. Christmas becomes a way to commemorate the true human nature of Jesus by focusing on his birth. In terms of development, it comes after Easter. But here's what happens. This is as far into math as you're going to get me to go. Um, <laughs> Jesus, is, Jesus is resurrected on what day did we say? March 25th. Is that the day he actually rose? No, probably not. But it's the date they settle on is March 25th. In the ancient world, an important person's life tends to revolve around one-year annual cycles. The big events of a person's life happen on an annual basis. And in their view, Jesus is... Uh, is, is risen from the dead on March 25th. They then reasoned he must have been conceived on March 25th. If he's conceived on March 25th, what would that make his birthday if it's nine months later? Boom, December 25th. Okay, they reasoned, hey, you know, he's, he's, he's uh, a year later, a year after he's conceived, um, or a year. Sorry. See, I'm st- no one hired me for my math skills, and this is farther in down the rabbit hole on the math than I, I should have gone. Um, so, so De- December 25th is chosen not because of the winter solstice, solstice or because some pagan celebration took place in December. Um, the Yule Festival was celebrated by pre-Christian Saxon and the Norse and Germans. It stretched from December until early January. Um, Pre-Christian Celtic practices such as mistletoe and ivy have certainly become a regular part of what we think of as Christmas obser- observances. Um, but the best evidence we have is that ancient people believed in the significance of the yearly cycle of a person's life. And that's why they choose December 25th as the day when Jesus is born. Um, we have no evidence from any early church fathers that this was an accommodation to a pagan culture. Um, that is a later inference. And it does coincide with these pagan festivals. But that doesn't mean that they were guided by that. Um, now, here is, here's, this is interesting also. You raise your hand if you know who Charlemagne is. 
All right, enough that I'm just going to say Charlemagne. Before, before Charlemagne was crowned emperor on Christmas Day, Christmas was did not receive much attention. Do you know what holiday got the most attention besides Easter? It was Epiphany. Who does who? What is what is Epiphany celebrating? Manifestation of Christ. The three wise men, right? The coming of the three wise men. Uh, we don't know that there were three, but anyway, uh, they give three gifts. Um, the coming of the wise men happens at Epiphany, right? And so Epiphany was the big show, but then Charlemagne gets crowned on Christmas Day. Guess what suddenly becomes the most important holiday to everybody? And Charlemagne has a little something to do with it. Christmas. Suddenly Christmas is the day. Hey, you know what's really awesome? Christmas. That's the day that Charlemagne was crowned on. And um, Charlemagne does an excellent job, and it does move to the front. It does move to the front. Um, but notice what ends up happening here. And I'm going to have to end on this. Um, what's, what happens here is a holiday really is an interpreta- interpolation between two words, holy and day. It's a holy day. And we begin to see these proliferations of holy days in the church around this time. In the early church, worship was much simpler. Your calendar is obviously smaller. Uh, observations, huge closer to the Hebrew calendar. They're far less numerous. Outside of the Lord's Day, the Jewish celebrations were seen as optional. Some people did them, but they were acceptable. Um, and then you have this early church with a very relatively simple calendar. Work six days, worship God, rest one. Right? That's the, that's the calendar of the early church. Here's what happens by the time of the Reformation. I'm going to quote this from Scott Manesh, who has a wonderful book called the Calvin's Company of Pastors. Listen to how things have changed by the time you hit 1600 AD. The Catholic tradition had organized the liturgical calendar and celebrated the passage of time according to a sequence of church festivals and saints' days. The Catholic, Catholic liturgical year was divided into two parts. From late November to June, Catholics observed the ritual enactment of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ through the major feast days of Christmas, preceded by four Sundays in Advent. Epiphany, January 6th. Easter, preceded by Ash Wednesday and 40 days of Lent. Ascension, 40 days after Easter. Pentecost, 50 days after Easter. And Corpus Christi, 11 days after Pentecost. The second half of the year, from late June to late November, contains the majority of saints' days, including five of the seven major feasts to the Virgin Mary, days commemorating each of the twelve apostles and the fourteen auxiliary saints, as well as the Feast of All Saints' Day, November 1st, and All Souls' Day, November 2nd. In the regions of Savoy and Geneva, festivals dedicated to minor saints, such as St. Claude, were especially important. Throughout Catholic Europe, between 40 and 60 days a year were set aside as holy days, marked by abstaining from work, special processions and masses, and communal celebrations. In addition to religious festivals, the traditional liturgical year also included several dozen fast days during Lent and on the eve of festivals for the purpose of self-mortification and to imitate Christ's own 40-day fast and temptation in the wilderness. Reformed churchmen attempted to dismantle this ritualistic universe, arguing that prescribed days of feasting and fasting promoted a theology of works righteousness and encouraged superstition, drunkenness, and idleness. Um, What I want you to see is that things have a way of expanding and growing far beyond whatever we originally intend. So you start with a modest idea. It's not drawn from scripture, but it's a new tradition, and it seems like such a great idea. 
And so you practice it, and in time, it's impossible to get rid of, right? Because you always have to be able to say why it's a sin so that you have to stop doing it. But since the thing isn't a sin, then you can't prove that it's wrong, and so it keeps up until finally all of life becomes a very convoluted paragraph that I had to take breaths in between to read the whole thing. Um, I'm getting ahead of us, but I want you to see how something begins as a single good idea with good intentions and no plans whatsoever to bind anyone's conscience. So, for example, uh, you think, yes, the Lord gave us the Lord's Day, but what can it hurt us to create another special day devoted to this or that celebration? What can it hurt us? Uh, what, what can it hurt us to remember the day that this important saint was martyred? They're good examples for us. They're, they deserve to be remembered. Who could argue with that? But that good idea becomes an annual expectation. And then finally, it becomes a rule that is nearly impossible to dislodge. And eventually, if you don't participate, you become the one who has to justify your non-participation instead of the other way around. Right? Instead of giving a biblical defense of, of not participating, uh, or <laughs> of participating, you have to give a reason why you wouldn't participate. Now remember here, we're still in the 300s, we're still in the 400s. We're not at a a complex crowded calendar yet, but it will be here by the time a thousand years later happens. Like it takes a thousand years for all of this stuff to build and build and build until finally uh, it gets very crowded. Um, Very quickly, the calendar subject is complex. I won't dwell on it much more. Also, we're out of time. But I want to note this. By the time of the Reformation, it's understandable right, why the Reformers felt like they had to scale these things back. They, they just had to pull back. And so Calvin favored uh, having Christmas and Easter and Pentecost, for example. He said nothing more than that. You know, keep it simple. Um, nearly all of the Reformers gave renewed emphasis to the Lord's Day. And they did what they could to downplay the other holidays. They didn't repudiate them. But they tried to downplay them. Um, the Puritans did for a season outlaw Christmas altogether, um, and no one loved them for it. Uh, <laughs> they tried. <laughs> um, the feasts of saints, various holy days, they had multiplied in ways that were hard to keep track of even in the 16th century. And so we will talk more, though, about the church calendar when we talk about um, hot button issues in worship. Remember that one that you could tell I'm kind of dreading doing? We can talk about it in that one. Um, just know that, like, I am very happy to talk about the incarnation on Christmas, and I'm very happy to talk about the resurrection on Easter. I am slow to want to accumulate other practices around those things beyond remembering the resurrection and the birth of Jesus. So maybe you see in me sort of a desire for simplicity and sort of a a drawing back on pomp. That's my impulse. My impulse is to sort of be a little bit like the reformers and want to see the emphasis placed on the preaching of the word, to see the emphasis placed on the resurrection and the emphasis placed on the birth of Jesus and not so much around the surrounding things. So um, so I'm not an iconoclast. I don't want to get rid of the holidays. And if anyone ever told you that, then now you know that's not true. Um, but I'm a little more measured perhaps than some. So. We could talk afterwards. We've got to go because I kept you five minutes extra and I can see people in the hallway waiting for us to finish. So let me pray and then we can have all kinds of conversations afterwards. Hopefully you guys find this helpful. This is just a bunch of stuff that's happening that that you need to kind of know about. 
Um, but next week, we're going to talk about some healthy things in the early church, some really good things, such as their views of the Lord's Supper, for example, and preaching. I'm going to, we're going to have a celebration of early church preaching next week. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Christ to live among us. He really was a man. He really did walk among us. He still is a man. He has a human nature. And we thank you also for raising your son up, defeating Satan, defeating our sin. Uh, we praise you, O oh God, and we thank you that we get to remember that. We did get to do it on Easter and Christmas, but especially, God, you have given us the Lord's Day to remember these things. And I pray that we would put them all in their proper place. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.